This is Refigure with Chris and Rifo. A weekly dive into our favourite bits of culture, tech and diversity. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to our... Barcelona special. Barcelona special. Barcelona. Welcome to Refigure, our vaguely weekly podcast about the arts, culture, tech, and diversity. I'm Christopher. And I'm Rifa. Why are we talking like this? I don't know, just so we can be heard over the background oh, okay. chatter. I want to apologise to our dear listener that we are a bit late with this one. No, we're not. This is okay. going on time. Rewind, rewind, <laughs> rewind. To. Uh, rewind. Welcome to our Barce- Barcelona special. Barcelona. Por favor. Por favor. Gracias. We're going to talk about uh, Primavera Sound Festival that just finished, which had a majority of women artists on the bill. It was fantastic. We went for the whole weekend. We're still reeling and ringing in our ears from it. It was wonderful. We'll also chat about the amazing architect and designer Antoni Gaudi, who is the great Catalan modernist. We looked at some of his buildings, including the Sagria Familia, (laughs) (laughs) which is extraordinary. And we also went on a guided tour of Casa Butler, I think, or the House of Bones, as it's normally known. It's got a dragon on it. There's a whole bunch of houses that you can go and see. If someone says to you, when you go to Barcelona, 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 go and see Gaudi's house, they don't mean his house. There's a whole many, many, many houses that he designed. And so, yeah, that's the best house, Casa Batlo. Casa Batlo. I think that's how you say it. I'm not sure. It does kind of look a bit like a massive big pile of splurgy bones. But we will talk about it in a minute. From Thursday to Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll say it. What's Primavera then, eh? It's a three-day festival. (laughs) What was that? What? You sort of asked yourself a question. Go on. Send it to the editors. All right. If you don't know, Primavera Sound is a festival that has been going for ten years? In Barcelona. No, it's been going a lot longer than that because it grew out of the rave scene. So it was originally Ooh. like a clubby festival and then it became Ooh, an enormous that's right. indie type our lovely friend. Reading and Leeds type festival. And then now it's evolved again into something new. So, yeah, it's been going for a long time. Right. So it was a bit more rough around the edges, was it? Yeah, who was our friend? Our friend Cara Courage, world famous expert on the archers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, head of Tate Exchange. She was explaining that she lived in Barcelona in the 90s and she remembered going to Primavera then. It's on the site where they had the Olympics, so it's a concrete complex, if you like, but it's got like an auditorium where you can sit down and see bands and then outside you've got like four or five different stages. It's also amazing sound. Every single stage was far enough away from another stage. There wasn't a blooming fairground nearby there wasn't crappy burger vans with their own music blaring out it was a proper music festival for people who enjoy all different kinds of music i enjoyed very much watching lots of pop 
that I don't normally know. In fact, I watched so much stuff that I had no idea what they were, but I enjoyed the experience. One of the best innovations is they run two main stages opposite each other on a huge field, and then they alternate so that the moment one of the big artists on one side finishes, within five minutes of that, the artist kicks off on the other side, on the other main stage. You don't get the waiting around of a normal main stage while some band spends 40 minutes setting up. Mm. And that's a fantastic way of creating constant main stage, big big bucks type entertainment. And on that main stage, we saw artists like Robin and Courtney Barnett and uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. I made Reefer stay through the whole of Carly Rae Jepsen, who, to be fair, was absolutely magnificent. What's her main song? She's the Call Me Maybe song. How does that go? It goes, boop, boop, I just met you. This is crazy. Here's my number, call me maybe. Oh, Oh, I know that one. There are so many young people of all different persuasions they're all having a great time it was a real party atmosphere and then you had some older people who've been going there for a long time who had primavera 2002 t-shirts on and that sort of thing going to see the bands like beak and the bloke out of pavements band what's that called stephen malkmus and the jicks low we saw some folk music chris men go and see in the chair <laughs> i tell you what you've got to have stamina to go to a festival like this because the main acts that I wanted to see were all like at two, three o'clock in the morning. So yeah, we were pretty, um, you need your very dark sunglasses for this one. Well, that highlights a couple of massive differences from UK festivals. Although there were artists on in the very early evening because it had long running times of a lot of artists and they got through a whole range of stuff. Two key differences for me from UK festivals of that size. Like this is a festival of tens of thousands of people it's a big mainstream festival you've got Solange or Robin or whatever but you've also got really interesting curated genre artists across all genres and that might have been down to partly the the gender commitment that they made where they had more than a 50% of women artists represented but that might also be just this kind of non-British curation where it isn't stuck in a rut of booking a certain stodgy bunch of people. One particular run on the Sunday that we got to see was absolutely extraordinary in terms of breadth. So we saw The Mystery of the Bulgarian Voices, which is a 20-piece Bulgarian folk choir with Lisa Gerard singing with them, who used to be in Dead Can Dance, who's basically like a, an opera-style diva, singing with this traditional Bulgarian folk band. Then we went across to another place and saw Shellac, playing their amazing stuff and then we went from shellac through and by that time it's getting into the evening we went over the bridge to another corner of the festival to a stage on the beach because the other thing is this is all on the seafront and it's absolutely gorgeous and we saw lizzo so we've seen three artists that couldn't have been more further from each other the other thing which we find with other european festivals like the one we went to berlin there's hardly any security people are not behaving badly do you know what I mean everyone's being really well behaved people are politely uh, trying to get to the front of gigs but even if you're at the back you can see pretty well because they're proper stages and it's not um, you know even the smaller stages are high enough that everyone can see it's not full of people absolutely trolleyed which is the other thing that we get in this in the uk is like we can't be trusted (laughs) (laughs) just go just enjoy ourselves we all have to get paralytic everyone's like in the food courts enjoying themselves just just chilling out and everyone's really 
nice to each other. There isn't any aggro. At the food court, even at its most crowded time where it was pretty busy and there were thousands of people milling around there, you never queued for more than four minutes or so, at the very most, for the food. Plus the food was very nice, plus the food was cheap, and then you always had a table to sit at with your mates. I know this sounds like I'm a right granny, but at festivals in the UK where we have thousands and thousands of people just leave loads of rubbish everywhere, and they even leave all their tents and stuff, and of course this isn't a camping festival, there were people just quietly just cleaning up the rubbish, getting rid of the recycle, cleaning the tables all night. So there was never any rubbish anywhere. There was never any piles of stuff. There was never any people falling over. You know, there was never puke. The portaloos and everything. I'm sorry, but it's really important for someone like me who absolutely hates festivals, UK festivals. And some of them have been going on this weekend where, again, it's just a lot of rain, a lot of mud, and people pretending they're having a great time because they spent a lot of money to go there. And they couldn't hear anything. And they just had a miserable time. And they got absolutely paralytic and fell in the mud. Okay, so Reefa, who were your highlights? I wrote them down somewhere because I, but I forgot. Lizzo was at the top. I think she's a great party girl. I enjoy watching her jump around in a leotard and fancy feathers. And I think her songs are fantastic and they're real party, party tunes. She's a brilliant crowd put. Like, she controls the crowd like nobody. She's been doing a lot of gigs and she can play the flute. And she's been doing loads of social media and she's on Warner Brothers. She's not an underground artist at all. She's, she's actually brilliant. On YouTube, I found something with her with um, Big Frida. There's a song with her with Big Frida back when she was just starting out. Anyway, that was only last year. Anyway, she's massive in the UK now because all the mainstream people have caught up with her. Anyway... Also, it's a really filthy show as well. Oh my it? god, Chris. <laughs> also, Kate Tempest, who I don't think I've seen live before. I mean, I've watched her on uh, As Live on the telly, you know, on Glastonbury maybe. But that show really kicks you in the face. It's great. She plays some new songs. She's coming to Brighton Dome soon as well. And Robin was a highlight for me. Although, um, it's really difficult, isn't it? These are all. The real fans are down the front, and if you're not a real fan and you kind of are a little bit distanced from it, and this is a festival crowd, but because the sound was so good, it, I thought it was flipping amazing because normally, I have to say, I've been to a lot of festivals and I generally get to see zero actual people, physically people, and uh, can't hear anything either. Who did you like? My absolute favourite was a solo set very early on when we first got there by Julianne Baker. And partly it was still the rush of the new. Like, we've gone to a festival and then we walked into this auditorium and it's literally like walking into the Royal Festival Hall or something, like a really posh indoor venue, permanently built, and yet it's part of this festival site. And then Julianne Baker played a solo set on electric guitar with loads of effects pedals, bit of keyboard and she had occasional support from a violinist and she was outstanding and I think part of the reason she was outstanding was that I'm not sure she was having a great gig it felt quite awkward although I think she probably always feels quite awkward she does that thing where she's doing incredible emotional histrionics and drama in the songs but she's also trying to operate a million foot pedals at the same time (laughs) and sometimes I was thinking to myself 
don't be quite so sonically ambitious. Just like trust that the song will see you through because they're great songs. It was near perfect, and yet she seemed to be she seemed to be slightly like uncomfortable the whole time with it. I think that's her shtick, mate. Well, maybe it is, but I loved it. I thought that she was on a par with the greatest singer-songwriters I've ever seen. I quite enjoyed it too. Mm. I had some feelings in that one. She was. um, She reminded me of Paul Simon. It was quite. It was quite um, late seventies-ish. She was really good. When Great Escape Festival happened in Brighton a few weeks ago, we bumped into Big Jeff, Bristol gigging icon. And he suggested we go and see Chai. So we went to see Chai, which is a Japanese four-piece, all-woman, kind of like post-punk funk outfit, a bit like Tom Tom Club or something like that, with a bit more contemporary disco-y bits in there. And they really shred, they play amazingly well, and they've got some great party songs and then some kind of knowing political stuff about uh, kawaii and being like... um, being like cutesy but then being undercutting the cutesy with some acerbic stuff and I really loved it. I thought that was a brilliant set as well. Awesome. Anthony Gaudi uh, was born in 1852 and he is the great, singular great artist of Catalan modernism. So he's an architect and a designer. And his best-known building is the Sagrada Familia, which is this extraordinary kind of looming presence over the Barcelona skyline. And we, once we'd moved away from the festival, we have been staying just a few streets away. And it's an extraordinary kind of looming, huge building. So we looked at that on the outside and we looked at a few other bits and bobs, but we mainly went on a guided tour or a kind of self-guided tour of Casa Batlo, which is the House of Bones, a a terraced house, a big, tall terraced house in the centre of town that Gaudi designed. And it's over several floors, and it has a roof. We went out on the rooftop, and it has this uh, exquisite inner stairwell that goes all the way up, where he did all sorts of clever things with gradiating the colours of the tiles and graduating the size of the windows to help the light get down into the thing and create this kind of very liquidy, almost like underwater sea effect as you looked out of the glass. He created uh, shapes to the glass so that you'd look out and it would wobble like you're underwater. His stuff looks like very organic, like it's almost been born instead of been made. There are no straight lines, there's no corners, it's all globbed onto itself. Reefa, what did you think of the building itself, the Casa Batlo? And Gaudi's kind of the way he designs and builds stuff. You walk in to this luxury hobbit house. <laughs> it's like living inside a tree. There's loads of wood everywhere. It's really beautifully rendered in this organic fashion. The doors are kind of curved. Handles are, are like based on his own fingers his own hands so you can really feel them um, everything feels really sculpted there's even a lift that goes through but I don't know if that was there when it first started but it's really wide and tall and so tall that when we had a little our photo taken on the balcony it was almost on the roof and it was so high up it's it was like a department store like so like Liberty, imagine Liberty, but a house that is living, that people are actually living inside that house, but there are like 
25 different floors. Even the attic was like walking inside a sculpture. It was an absolutely stunning building. They had an, what do you call it, like a, what they called an augmented reality um, headset thing that you could play with while you were going around. But this idea of being underwater and that you were sort of, I don't know, what's the word? Like exploring the inside of nature inside this house in the middle of the city was really exciting and interesting. And It genuinely feels like a building that you've never been in before. It feels like a unique way of seeing architecture and interior decoration. I'm not sure I liked it. So both this Casa Batlo and also looking up at the Sagrada Familia, I found it almost slightly nauseating. And I found quite a lot of kind of emotional <laughs> negatives in this space. That's not like you, Chris. I found it very... I almost found a hint of H.R. Geiger's kind of alien designs in there. It could feel like being inside a creature. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. Wow. I mean, I did recognise that it was brilliant. And also, they were quite pains to emphasise that although his design has all this unique visual flair to it and looks like nothing else you've ever seen, the actual designs of things that you needed to use inside the house, like you mentioned the door handles, everything's very usable like he was brilliant at ux wasn't he even though he was like a crazy weird obsessive catholic designer gaudi starts off his life in quite kind of reasonably mainstream establishment circumstances and seems to be a kind of headed for a career as a figure of the establishment i guess in a in a kind of artsy way and then he gets more and more obsessive more and more focused on faith and more and more outsider and as he gets older he he also his health is quite frail so he's not a very well man and he gets older and he dresses like a tramp or a beggar and so people don't recognize him and it's almost like he's turning his back on his his fame because he was well known in barcelona and he was a very important cultural figure there but he's like rejecting that and the sagrada familia has this dark obsessive nature of like he's exploring what faith is and lots of people say it's a godly and it's this kind of shining beacon of religious fervor like people have said that he should be made a saint you know there's a campaign to make him beatified but i found it honestly looks like the serenity familiar from the outside this cathedral looks like a screaming old creature to me it really does it reminded me of the ents in lord of the rings or it's like really organic and not wholesome not saintly or heavenly in a in a faith-based way and then the casa batlo as well i mean they call it the house of bones it felt like wandering around inside a thing and it felt incredibly earthly and natural and vivid and yet it's supposedly this act of great personal faith that he designs this stuff so there is some something to uncover right at the heart of it and i have come away thinking i'd quite like to maybe read a book about him or bit marmite in it I really love that La Segria Familia. It's it's a church. It's still a working church. Yeah. It looks like a an enormous sculpture that you cannot see all of it at once. It was his attempt to try and have as many motifs to do with the Catholic faith as possible. Every time you look at it, you see some other strange little character in there. <laughs> but it looks really organic again. It's the most visited site in the whole of Spain. It's famously still unfinished. 
and just the other day it got planning permission or something to be finished <laughs> like a they finally kind of made a deal with the local government that they could they basically paid them off they paid them like 40 million euros or something so that they could get proper planning permission to finish it and it will get finished now they reckon it'll get finished in another 10 years so when you go and see it you have to expect you're seeing a building with cranes around it and in fact that was even more disconcerting that it's this it to me it looked like a creature in agony an organic creature in agony surrounded by mechanical cranes so that's a really vivid powerful image but not necessarily a a good one (laughs) yeah because they've been around for so long almost the cranes are part of the experience and then the the new part the part that they're still building looks so incongruous really doesn't it it looks a bit too new and a bit too bright and a bit too sparkly Casa Batlo, it's covered on the outside by mosaic pieces of tile. So it's got this sort of shimmering quality. And on the roof, he's made it into this, uh, the shape of a dragon, which you can only see if you're way over on the other side of the road because it's so, you're too close if you're standing at the bottom and you can't really see it from the roof. So it's just like for whoever's got the view of that. And all those tiles, the mosaic of tiles, it's, it's not orderly. It's like no. thousands upon thousands of broken tiles from junk heaps and other buildings and stuff. What I found really nice about Barcelona, the architecture, the leafy suburbs, the people out and about in the daytime, like on the weekend, especially in the squares, that just people were super polite and nice and kind. What are you reading for? 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 Shall I ask you in a funny voice? Yeah, you can ask me in whatever voice you like. Chris, what have you been reading? Mainly, I've been reading this great article in the New York Times about Agatha Christie. And it's a piece by Tina Jordan about when Agatha Christie vanished in December 1926. So Tina Jordan has put together a whole article by digging out loads and loads of different press articles from the time because Agatha Christie was already a world-famous author. So when she vanished, it was a huge thing. And the police were trying to find her. And there's this bit where she sends letters to her husband and her her brother-in-law. And her brother-in-law tells the police, oh, it's all right, she's fine, she's at this spa, she's sent me a letter. But because of various other circumstances around it, the police don't quite believe him, so they're still looking for her, and they've got, like, search parties out for her and everything. And that's mainly because her husband was having an affair, so there was a kind of load of domestic complication going on. Uh, But the whole story is fascinating, and it's a great read. It's on the New York Times website, and it's called uh, When the World's Most Famous Mystery Writer Vanished. Uh, by Tina Jordan. I'm going to mention two other things very quickly. One is, as if little old Grace Petrie, our favourite lefty protest singer, didn't get a piece on her in the New Yorker, and that's amazing, so check that out. And also, I've written something myself for the Quietus magazine. I did their review of the new Bruce Springsteen album, Western Stars. So if you either like Bruce Springsteen or you like the quietest, or you like my writing, go and check that out. It's quite good. Reefa, what have you been reading? Guess what? I read a whole book all by myself. I went back to reading The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. It's an old book. She wrote it in 19... Well, it was first published in 1970, but there's a, a foreword when she talks about her feelings about writing the story at the time. Basically, it's the story of 
uh, just after the depression in the 1940s in Ohio in the States and it says on the back unlovely and unloved Pacola prays each night for blue eyes like those of her privileged white school fellows it's not a happy story this one but it's told from the point of view of mostly from the point of view of one of her school friends who's absolutely appalled that her school friend wants to have blue eyes. Toni Morrison is one of those incredibly vivid storytellers. It reads like poetry and it's much more accessible than some of her later books. Um, Beloved is quite traumatic, you know, like difficult to read, and there's a lot of supernatural stuff in it. Whereas this one is a bit more down to earth. But what she does really well is tell the story from the point of view of the children, the girls in it. But also there are a couple of chapters where she goes really in depth into the father in the story. It's a pretty harsh book, but it's also really beautiful about innocence and about childhood and about growing up in poverty. So if you're interested in black American culture, this is certainly a book to have and the book to cherish. <sighs> yeah, it's hard. It's called The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. So have we got anything to plug this week or things that we're coming that are coming up? Well, apart from the plugging I already did for my article in Quietus. Um... Oh, can I just say that my event last week went really well? You can say that, yeah. We had a full house and people left feeling really well and happy and like they'd sorted out their lives, which was nice. So if you want to know more about my workshops that are coming up soon, it's rifa.co.uk. And I'm also about to put my meditations on a podcast as well. Very good. I don't have anything to plug. Give us a, a like and a subscribe and a nice review and some stars and stuff wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we will talk to you next week when we will be safely back in the United Kingdom. Yeah, join us next week for another rampant issue of Refigure. Cheerio. Goodbye. Goodbye. Don't fly.